Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Some outtakes from when John Keating interviewed me for his podcast, which is that 70s card show. He deals with everything 70s. This little uh, snippet excerpt from his show, which I, again, highly recommend. I'm a regular listener to his show. But we start creeping into the 80s. Thanks, sponsors, Topps, Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, CompC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So uh, thanks, John Keating, and thanks, listeners. Here it is for your listening enjoyment. We get into the 80s and the advent of two things. It's competition for tops, but it's the advent of the rookie card because we had Ricky Henderson and Fernando and a couple of years later, Cal Ripken. What are your memories of that time when we went from one manufacturer to three over, overnight? Well, it was a big deal. Other than the fact that there were all these errors and variations, that was yeah. uh, a little troubling and made work for me as a price guide author. Yeah, They, they all got into it eventually. But still, in 81... Finishing your 81 three sets was still 50 bucks to get your three sets and put them away and you're done. And now let's get back focused on finishing the rest of the sets in the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, the 30s. Now it's very different. If you want to chase cards from this year, you can spend your whole budget. But that wasn't the case in 81 and 82. In fact, in 81, then they had traded sets and other kinds of things. But still, you're adding 10, 20. 30 bucks to your budget. If we had a guy come into our card shop in 1979 or 80 with a hundred bucks to spend, that was a big spender. That was a good mm-hmm. customer. And they could sure. walk out. I won't say they'd need a shopping cart, but they generally would be walking out with boxes of cards. Why had been at this for decades trying to break this monopoly? Why were they caught off guard? They're set as a mess, right? Quality as well as errors, just the quality of the, the set photography and the, the data they put in. Why is it a mess? Were they taken by surprise by the victory? Or I've never really been asked that question exactly this way. So let me come at it. I, I think that the number of errors and variations and problems in the 81 flare set are too many to be intentional, which some people have said that they wanted to make a splash to mm-hmm. put a chase factor on their cards. They're just too many borderline incompetent kinds of things that there'd be a lot of exciting ways to make variations. Other sets, they did those 66 card FLIR teams in action. Football a couple years prior to, yeah. Yeah, for several years, but those were really simple. I won't say they bit off more than they could chew, but it apparently wasn't as simple as they thought. And they may have added some new people to their team because it looked like the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. You're a professional at this point in the industry. What was your transition from being a collector? I know you talk about conflict of interest and you weren't an active personal collector. How did you satisfy that itch? Was it you just diving fully immersed in the work and you're collecting? You know, to diving, I didn't have time. Basically, the line of demarcation really was 1984 when mm-hmm. I had a monthly magazine. We got a monthly magazine that even though I wasn't paying myself, I was working more than full time. And I right. brought on some really good teammates. They got paid, but it still was a lot of work and, and we all really got our hands full. So it was pretty easy to say, I'm not going to collect, but I didn't, transition, have, I didn't have time. Yeah. But then as we hired other people, it's like, hey, can I still buy cards? I said, well, you can still be a collector, but it's not right if you're a dealer, if you're knowing what the price is going to be next month. And it was hard for some of the people. Not everybody, if they didn't abide by it, we'd talk to them and they'd either have to stop or they'd have to move on and no hard feelings. But in the early 80s, I still had some interest in the card shop. 
you know, okay. one, one third essentially with my two partners and they were great guys and they didn't want me to leave because I was one third of everything, but I wasn't able to carry my weight and be there because we took turns. And so we reconfigured and, it, 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 and I just said, I need to bail out, which is tricky because uh, you know, taking one third of the cards. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. So I'm going to backtrack slightly to 79. I liken that to, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but that was, it was a seismic shift what you did. And I liken that to Babe Ruth where he pitched, he was on one side, he was the pitcher, then suddenly he becomes the hitter that he was. And that's what you did. You were on one side of the table and then you evened out the playing field for the rest of everybody else. Was that your intention or was it strictly about gaining knowledge or was it about evening the uh, playing field? I'd been on both sides of the table, John. I'd been a dealer and I'd been a collector. When you went to the shows in the mid seventies, you could be both. Tables cost 20 bucks or something like that. It was just ridiculous. You'd be in it for gas money and and no showcases. You weren't renting anything. There wasn't any table skirt. You just threw some of your duplicates on the top of the table and and, uh, they weren't always priced, but people knew on some of the basic stuff of the current, the, the regular issue flagship kind of top sets. And so it was a pretty amicable group, and most people were knowledgeable. But like I said, until the uh, publications got widespread use, then it, it was pretty hard to get into it because you could be taken advantage of. So uh, all of a sudden, when everybody had a price guide, they could say, okay, that's, this is what this would sell for, and these are the tougher cards. To me, it's a matter of making uh, order out of chaos. Do I have a know-it-all gene? I don't think so, but I'm a lifelong learner. Mm-hmm. But it's like when you get a PhD, it's not because you've learned everything. It's because you've learned that there's too much for anybody to know everything. Right. But you no, know, PhD is a doctor of philosophy. It's understanding the philosophy behind the science or the field that, that it's okay if somebody asks you questions, you say, I don't know. I haven't studied that and to have the confidence in that. In fact, my PhD exams were asking a combination of questions, some of which were unanswerable. If you're really sharp, that's an unanswerable question. If you're sharp in your field, otherwise you should have the answer. But I had one guy that kept asking me this question. It wasn't answerable. And he was trying to goad me into giving an incorrect answer. And I said, no, it can't be proved. It can't be solved. And he kept coming at me like, you you can't even solve this problem. I said, no, I can't because I don't think it's solvable. You can't solve it. It's just just a stress interview, but I passed. He passed. Huh? I, I outlasted him. I think that there's a uh, loner gene in all of us because we spend a lot of time by ourselves. I've, I've seen you in action. I saw you at the Dallas Card Show with your dollar bins. I, I would assume that you're in the same boat I am. Got a little bit of loner in you, right? Yeah, I'm a little bit. Uh, I'm probably in between ambivert, less extrovert. If I do have an extrovert burst, I've got to rest up, right. <laughs> recharge gotcha. my yep. battery. Yeah. But I can do that, but I don't like that. But I don't want to be a hermit either. But you evolved into that because I'm trying to come out of my shell more as I go through life. I'm sure you've done the same. I think it's moving toward the middle. I know extroverts that are trying to tone it down in their old age or as they mature and to strike more balance. When you're going through some of the dollar boxes, you have to have a level of concentration. It's not perfect because I can sit with Rich, for example, and he can be doing the same thing. We can be talking and looking at the same time. But then again, he and I know what kind of questions we can ask each other when we're going through cards 100 a minute with a couple big boxes and we're having fun. So it's lighthearted. We're not asking each other difficult trivia questions. 
But yeah, I've, at the National, I, I was sitting next to a bunch of guys that I know that we're visiting while we're going through. And I'm trying not to compare notes or look over my shoulder what they're pulling in case they're pulling right. something I would like. In fact, one guy, which is not kind, said, hey, look at this great Clementi I pulled. I bet you would have liked that. I said, yeah, I hadn't been through that box. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you come after me instead of going? Before? Yeah, right. 